Twice Told Tales is a podcast about life and literature in the early modern period. I'm Leah Astbury, historian of medicine. And I'm Emma Clawson, and I work on French literature and thought. We're both researchers at the University of Cambridge. We decided during the pandemic to record some of the conversations we were having about our work as a podcast. In the 16th and 17th centuries, people were as interested as they are now in how to live a good life. It was a time of plague, poverty and daily hardship, but still people aspired to live well in an age before wellness. We talk about what makes a good life, then and now, looking at poetry, philosophy, medical texts, diaries and more. In each episode, we will be looking at a particular theme and bringing a text or example from our research to discuss that reflects something interesting about the early modern good life. Hi, Leah. Hi. (laughs) So, um, what has made you think of the good life this week? So, I don't know if you know this about me, Leah, but I am a semi-keen gardener. I didn't actually know that about you. Are you really? I didn't know you had a garden. Yeah, well, we have a really small one uh, that doesn't have flower beds or grass. It's like a pebble courtyard, but I have acquired and filled several pots and containers. So do you grow mainly flowers rather than vegetables? Yes, I'm all about the aesthetics and not the utility, although our neighbour just gave us some broccoli, which I'm excited about. And we we have we do grow some fruit. Um, we've got an apple tree in a pot and some raspberries. So I've been thinking about the the lives of my plants and how they're doing and how different their lives are every year. Like the same plants from last year are growing differently now at different paces. We've got very different early summer weather. So flowers are slower to bloom, but I feel like there's a lot of leaf growth because of all the rain at the moment. So I'm kind of trying to be flexible in my definition of the good life of my garden. (laughs) It's not doing what I'm expecting it to, but at the same time, I still really like it. But if they're alive, then that's living a good life. Yeah, and I suppose, you know, gardening is like such a cliche of like the modern good life, isn't it? It is, I suppose. I am very keen on plants too, but I do not have a garden. So I only have house plants, but I am very attentive to them, sometimes too attentive that I drown them. But I've also been doing that thing that is all trendy nowadays where you um, shake your plant, indoor plant, to mimic wind and rain. Um, and apparently it makes them grow much better. Does it? I did not know that. I've only really started paying attention to plants since the first lockdown, partly inspired by my granddad. Shout out to Brian Clawson, no longer with us, but much missed. He died in the beginning of last year, just before the lockdown. So it just felt really nice to start thinking about gardening as a way of remembering him. So have you been living a good life this week, Leah? It's it's definitely been an it's been an okay life. I've had a lot of teaching, a lot of work this week. It's all been on Zoom. I feel a bit fatigued by breakout rooms, that sort of thing. But I did have the amazing joy of seeing you in person. So that has made for a, a, a better life week. And it has been exceedingly nice to be inside with a few people. We're not recording this um, together because we can't figure out the technology. But we considered doing that, didn't we? We did. We did. Yeah. And what has made you think of the good life? Well, um, I don't know whether you know this about me, but um, at the beginning of lockdown, somebody persuaded me to have a Zoom tarot card reading. Mm. And I don't believe in tarot. But I think it can be very useful for making decisions. And I don't think it's ever been completely wrong. I think, I mean, part of that is like astrology. It's very vague. But 
I've been thinking a lot this week about uh, in relationship to our theme, learning and the good life is like, does knowing about the future make for a better life? Does knowing about the outcomes? Oh, that's a good question. And then I suppose with Tara, you don't really know the outcomes. But for example, I have a job interview next week and I decided, or my friend rather, did a tarot card reading for me over Zoom. And it was very positive reading. And I don't know, you know, in some ways now I think like knowing that the tarot cards have said that it's going to be positive, is that going to help me having that kind of, I suppose this is a a question that we should really sort of refer to classicists. They've got lots to say about knowing whether knowing your fate and being able to avoid it. I mean, I have absolutely no patience for that because it suggests on some level that if people are in a tough spot, it's because they've not, you know, not tried hard enough or not worked hard enough or not done the right things. And I think, yeah, it's bullshit. It absolutely. So no manifesting here, but tarot card reading is fun. It's made me feel much more confident about the job interview. Well, how exciting. I look forward to the next update. <laughs> Okay, shall we move on to talking about learning and the good life in our respective periods? Absolutely. Emma, what do we learn about um, attitudes to learning and knowledge and its relationship with living a good life in the kinds of sources that you work on? That is a big question. And I think the first thing I would say is that what you notice is that writers in the early modern period and intellectuals especially perhaps are really interested in the question of whether we can learn to live well or to live better and if so what the roots to that better life through learning are. But there's also a sense that learning itself is a good life. So I think you can track a line you know from ancient ethics to modern self-help in terms of asking the question how can we live better and what what kind of thing does that involve does it involve thinking does it involve not thinking what kinds of things should you read how should you treat other people and what kind of disciplines are involved in that because I mean one definition of philosophy that is very current in the early modern period is like the art of living so I think early modern Europe is very fertile or lively in asking how learning can produce a good life philosophy itself is presented as a good life so if you spend your life philosophizing then that might be the best way to spend your time according to some classical authors and some modern ones who rework them another way that learning is seen to create or foster a better life is if you read about historical figures and see where they went right and wrong you can copy their example and then maybe live a better life So there's kind of the practical side of learning about the good life. So what did ancient philosophers think the good life was? How did ancient figures, famous ones like Alexander the Great or Aristotle, how did they conceive of a good life and how did they practice it and how can we copy them and how can we improve on what they thought? This reminds me of the um, daily routine that Mark Wahlberg published that everyone mocked him mercilessly for because he supposedly woke up at 2.30 and worked out for like five hours a day. And also this craze in kind of like the five things that CEOs do that make them wealthy or whatever, that kind of craze with, well, if I can imitate somebody else's good life, then I will also live the good life. Yeah, that is very much at play in early modern learning. 
it's like studying figures I mean it also I think that it's not accidental that it reminds you of someone as macho as Mark Wahlberg because it's very much a kind of study <laughs> in masculinities you know um, how to be a scholarly man how to be a good male leader it's very inflected by gender um, but yeah these are objects of study in what is referred to by historians as the humanist tradition. So the, the idea of humanism is that it is about learning itself. It's a style of learning, which means studying classical texts and, and commenting on them and translating them and using them to form a new varied curriculum in comparison to the medieval university curriculum. I mean, we think of humanism now as something that's focused on the human and a kind of way of living a humane life and living without God. And that's not really what early modern humanism is. I think it's best defined as a mode of learning that is actually very, very centered on new definitions of the good life. It's not an irreligious kind of learning, but it is very focused on the human. Humanism also intersects with a certain kind of religious discourse that emphasizes like personal engagement with God and agency, like human agency in their relationship with the divine. Oh, Absolutely. And that really centers on reading. So humanism is also about rereading texts, recommenting on them, figuring out what they actually meant, doing kind of philological work. And that applies both to scripture and to classical texts. So I've talked about practical learning about life, how to live, what kinds of lives you read about, what kinds of theories of good living early modern scholars spend time thinking about. But life is also studied itself as a topic. Right. So it's not just about how to live, what you should do, you know, practical advice about your bibliography and diet and who you talk to and where you go and what kind of attitude you have. Right. It's also that they are very interested in what life is and what kind of life is the best kind. Right. And best in this sense, do we mean not just the most enjoyable kind, but the most virtuous or the, the one that makes the biggest difference to other people? Yeah. Yeah, that seems like a huge kind of philosophical question is what actually makes a good life? Is it one that affects other people? Is it one that you're personally fulfilled? Does it affect no one? Yeah, exactly. Is it a humble life, a sort of a, a peasant's life or something? Okay, so I think we need to talk about all of that. One of the main ways in which scholars of the early modern period differentiate between types of life is between the active and the contemplative life. So the active life is the life in the city, you go to work, you negotiate in the parliament, you advocate for particular interest groups, you know, you might act as a judge or a lawyer. That's the active life, which is advocated by philosophers like Aristotle and Cicero. But Aristotle also talks about the contemplative life and the kind of scholarly withdrawn life where you focus your mind on higher things and you withdraw from like the hurly-burly of work and all that kind of thing. And that is sometimes seen in the early modern period as the more desirable, more refined, more virtuous, more morally appropriate life. There's a parallel to the kind of cloistered life there where you're just thinking about yeah like a monastic yeah yeah like you're thinking about profound and spiritual things on your own rather than trying to do things in the world which is fundamentally corrupt and trying to display your knowledge or your... yeah yeah exactly so often the language is framed around glory so should you seek glory should you try and increase your renown and should you try and increase the renown of your city or your area or should you not 
do that and should you just think about things a lot <laughs> right right um and they're kind of the uh, the mirror image of one another and in practice most people who are advocating one or the other advocate the other at another time and most people live both but i think that what should be said here is that we're talking about elite lives as well so talk about the the lives of people in power and who then find that power of burden you know i guess the uh, person we could talk about in relation to this is machiavelli because he's a kind of active politician sort of sent on diplomatic missions around the turn of the 16th century in Italy. He writes about politics, but then, you know, when he writes The Prince, he's actually kind of in exile and he's in his, his estate and he's living his contemplative life and he's thinking about things. So he has this conceit that he's withdrawn and he's <laughs> he's contemplating, but actually he's writing The Prince and trying to get back in with his previous bosses. So, you know, right. it's not like the active and contemplative lives are even necessarily that antithetical to one another because the best contemplators are sometimes in demand politically and that kind of thing. This is really interesting because one of the things I come across a lot there's a craze in the 17th century for English people, men and women, to have their funeral sermons published. And the funeral sermons always say, oh, you know, she wrote this incredibly in-depth diary, but she never intended it to be published. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a real trope in English print culture. It's like, oh, she wrote this and she was the most sort of intelligent and learned woman or man, but she never intended it to be published. There's sort of virtue in concealing one's learning and knowledge yeah or having it for yourself for your personal edification and for your soul rather than necessarily displaying it but most of the writers I study who praise contemplation are doing so very publicly of course and do publish including their letters thank goodness they do otherwise we would be out of a job (laughs) so I guess in terms of learning and the good life I think that people with power and money in this period in France and Italy, which I'm thinking of in particular, but probably in England too, are investing in learning for kind of citizens training and to try and make states or city states or cities or nascent nations and make them better functioning or to participate in a kind of proto-nationalist competition between who's the most learned, who's the most advanced. So new scholarly institutions are being founded in France, they found an institution called the Collège Royal or the Royal College as an alternative source of learning to the medieval university, the Sorbonne. Um, so it's in Paris and that's meant to provide this new humanist training, which is quite good life focused. You mentioned earlier that, you know, a lot of the kind of examples that you're talking about now are from men trying to prove a certain kind of masculinity as well and the examples that I've chosen today are all about women's learning and I think interestingly for women that knowledge is always meant to be applied it's dangerous if it's just for the sake of knowing things so theory is not available to women I mean one women are thought not capable but two I think there's a much much longer kind of history of seeing women's knowledge as being experiential and men's knowledge as being theoretical. Yeah. Um, and particularly when it comes to medicine. Yeah, that's interesting, if depressing. I don't know, I think about a figure like Marguerite Navarre, who we talked about in a previous podcast, and she's renowned as being very learned. I mean, there are always exceptions. Yeah, yeah, and she's a queen, so, you know, she's very high up the social scale. Just on the note that we were just talking about, the question of the accessibility of learning and who that good life is for, I think that these same elites 
that I'm mostly talking about and thinking about, they have this funny and annoying habit of sometimes making that kind of gesture that we do see today as well, of thinking that actually it would be better just to have no learning at all and to live more of a practical life. Um, So another tension here is between learning as a means to the good life and learning as a block to the good life. Gosh, that also reminds me of this sort of a certain kind of right-wing discourse that you hear nowadays as well about sort of tearing down elites and that the problem is that they spend too much time reading and not enough time understanding and living a kind of a a normal life there's remarkable continuity to these kinds of discussions and constructions yes absolutely there's this great book called from humanism to the humanities by anthony grafton and lisa jardine i love anthony grafton and lisa jardine yes such icons wonderful historians and they trace a really interesting line about attitudes to learning from the renaissance or the early modern period to the present i don't know they necessarily talk about like happiness in the good life but it's great and i think that one of the reasons why there's so much continuity of attitudes and prejudices between what we're talking about now and what we live in today is because a lot of things have their roots in the periods that we're talking about I think yeah it's I mean it's called the early modern for a reason isn't it it is so for this week I decided that I would think about women and attitudes to women's learning what women were meant to know in this period and what they weren't meant to know So, of course, as always, because I'm a historian of medicine, part of my interest is, you know, medical knowledge and medical practice. But women in England in this period, I think because there's this huge emphasis, as I've talked about um, in previous podcast episodes, an enormous emphasis on sort of the family as a route to salvation and enrichment, then women take on a new kind of role within these family structures. And loads of conduct authors and even sermons emphasize that women have a huge responsibility within their families to educate and guide children, servants, and even sometimes their husbands, particularly on spiritual matters. And I was reading this week a text by a woman called Bethusa Makin, um, and it's called An Essay to Revive the Ancient Education of Gentlewomen. Um, and it's published in 1673. And it's very much in this sort of Renaissance humanist trend that we were talking about earlier. And in it, she sort of says that it's hugely important in particular for women to have classical knowledge or, you know, of um, ancient Greek and ancient Latin. And she says, by virtue of this education, she may be useful to their husbands in their trades and to their children by timely instructing them before they are to be sent to school. So I think I mentioned earlier that for most women, there's an emphasis on their knowledge having to be not necessarily practical, but useful for other people. It's gathered for the purposes of family members. And in particular, she provides the example of this woman, Lady Grace Mildmay, whose worth and excellency in learning is yet fresh in the memory of many men. So she's, women can be admired by men for their knowledge, but they're still women while they're kind of possessing that knowledge, right? It's quite separate from the sort of the creativity that men supposedly possess. 
while I was doing my reading for this, I was thinking about another text written by a woman called Elizabeth Jocelyn, and she writes a legacy that she leaves to her husband and her unborn child in the event of her dying in childbirth. She's heavily pregnant at this time. And in it, she quite clearly, so she sets out all the things that she wants her husband to do, and particularly about how she wants him to instruct their children and bring them up. And she says that if I have a girl, don't spend quite so much money on her education. And in particular, she's not interested in her having anything beyond vernacular knowledge, which is surprising given Elizabeth Jocelyn herself understood and read Latin. And for this, she says she's worried about inculcating pride in her daughter. So there's also even women themselves express this kind of anxiety around the limits of female knowledge. The final sort of reading that I was thinking about in relation to women's knowledge was about medical knowledge. And there's a, a book written by this man called Gervais Markham called The English Housewife or Huswife. Um, and he says it's sort of setting out the complete woman or the ideal woman and the instructions for her and the inward virtues of the mind along with general knowledges. And here he sort of really emphasized the importance for women to have what he calls a physical kind of knowledge. So there's an understanding of the body um, and in particular how to administer many wholesome receipts that's recipes or medicines for the good of their health as well as others and so again we get this idea of it being applied and in particular a notion that women sort of have some kind of innate intuitive knowledge about the body that they can impart that is experiential is not one that and he even says you know they can't match the intellect of men in this regard so you always have to have physicians that are trained in universities and then maybe you have women to do this is a kind of a, a trendy phrase right now but I think it's very useful that women often do the body work so that is the kind of the actual physical labor of administering medicine of kind of applying knowledge so in this sense for Markham and other kind of conduct writers, women should know things and should be reading regularly and in particular should have a great scriptural knowledge and medical knowledge. But it's always for the greater good of the family and for their salvation and welfare. It's not just for her and herself. It's not for her own enrichment. It's for the collective good life. Yeah, I think I will say that this kind of battle between this comes up all the time in medical texts um, that are written by women that they'll say, well, you know, you should come to me for medical cures because I might not know Latin. I might not have been to university, but I have experiential knowledge of delivering babies, of administering these kind of medicines. And men will say, oh, well, you know, don't go to an unlearned female practitioner because she's never been to university and I've read countless texts so there's a broader kind of battle I think intellectual battle within science if you can call it science in this period and medicine about what is worth more knowledge through practice and experience or knowledge through learning. Is there a parallel with class as well like folkloric or regional or um I guess, for want of a better word, peasant learning or inherited learning is seen as less desirable, but has its own track. And is it, do you think there's a parallel with like women's experiential learning? Definitely. I think stuff that women know, vernacular knowledge, bodily knowledge and oral knowledge as opposed to written knowledge all get lumped in this kind of one category of of this sort of trend that you're talking about about the sort of fetishizing of the unlearned somehow 
and then men learning Latin written stuff all gets lumped in this other kind of box yeah yeah I think I see that in in examples about kind of bodily knowledge like the kind of automatic knowledge of laborers and that kind of thing in the early modern period um what you're saying also really reminds me of an aphorism that is in a 19th century novel The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde and one of the characters makes this witticism that women represent the triumph of matter over mind the triumph of matter over mind wow yeah as a play on the mind over matter trope yeah 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 yeah. so this long history that we have to deal with of the spheres of knowledge and learning and, and what that has to do with like the body and reality and so the people who are characterized as having bodily knowledge, be they laborers or different kind of labor involved in women's labor, or depending on their class, and that being shut out from the the life of the mind. And the life of the mind being this crucial form of the good life that is interrogated in, in the early modern period. What source have you brought for this week? I am going to talk about a letter written by an Italian philosopher called Marsilio Piccino. Uh-huh. Um, so I am taking us slightly back in time compared to previous weeks and to a different country. So this is late 15th century Florence. So Marsilio Piccino is remembered as a philosopher but he was also, you know, he's one of these quote unquote Renaissance men. He was also trained in medicine and ordained as a priest and at the heart of Florentine cultural life. So just to give a bit of context, this period in Florence is that, you know, it's the time of the Medici, the Borgias, the kind of setting that is represented in uh, TV shows like Rain. <laughs> yeah, I've seen the period dramas. Yeah. 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 And um, so he's in the thick of it. He is very famous in the renaissance as a key translator of plato from greek into latin making plato more accessible to a wider learned audience because learning happens so much in latin especially male learning and he is asked marsilio piccino is asked by his patron cosimo de medici to found this academy in florence and to create a center of learning in this city as part of Florence's claim to be the cultural and spiritual moral heart of Italy. So you can see a civic and a scholarly good life intertwined in the professional life of Marsilio Piccino. He was really widely read in Renaissance Europe, primarily for what he wrote about Plato and especially Plato's Symposium, which is about love. So he's very influential on theories of love, on love poetry and theories of friendship because the Symposium is a dialogue about love but it's also kind of uh the symposium is like a banquet setting so it's these characters or real philosophers like socrates in ancient greece meeting up for dinner and having a very learned conversation marsilio piccino is very interested in life as a topic so he writes about the good life he actually writes three books on life and the title of the three books is that is three books on life so it's about how to live well emotionally spiritually and physically how to live a long life in the body and so on but I'm not talking about those today because I couldn't find the perfect extract for our discussion instead I wanted to talk about a letter that he wrote in the 1470s 
on what he calls the convivium. And the convivium is the Latin translation for symposium. But convivium literally means the living together. And what it is, this so you know, symposium is like a fancy word for academic conferences as well. So it's a kind of scholarly banquet, you might say. Scholarly so where, banquet, very nice. Yeah, where learned people gather to talk about their ideas while having good food. So what this has to do with learning and the good life, I suppose it's a vision of a kind of good life, a good life together promoted by scholars in the period. And I think it has to do with like how you can learn, how you can bring your learning to living well and how you can use learning to justify certain ideas of what good life is. Also, I should say, Ficino wrote so many letters. I think there's 15 volumes. Wow. Yes. So this is from volume two of his multi-volume letter collection that he published in his own lifetime. And he writes this letter concerning the satisfaction, end, form, provision, regulation, seasoning and authority of the convivium. And he writes this to his friend Bernardo Bembo, who's a Venetian nobleman and scholar. It's a really good name. Yes, yes. So this is these are also men of letters writing to one another. Right, yeah. And I think I'll just say a bit about the title of this letter concerning the satisfaction end for provision, regulation, seasoning and authority of the convivium. I think all those nouns show what a mixed phenomenon this is. So this this convivium is kind of a seminar. It's kind of a dinner party. It's kind of an abstract way of understanding human communion. And I think all these different nouns really speak to that. So you've got regulation and seasoning. And he really does talk about seasoning as if it's food, because it is food, like the line between the literal and the metaphorical good life or the literal and the metaphorical convivium here is extremely thin. So he starts this letter very elegantly. Marsilio Piccino, the Florentine, to Bernardo Bembo, the distinguished Venetian nobleman and doctor of law. Greetings. <laughs> when I was considering writing some philosophic words on the true magnificence and elegance of the convivium, the first to spring to mind as one to whom I should write concerning this was Bernardo Bembo, beloved child of philosophy, matchless for his magnificence and elegance. Therefore receive with a good will, my Bernardo, the plain and artless words which Minerva has spoken to your Marsilio about a not very plain or artless convivium. <laughs> this is an incredibly elaborate opening. That is very ostentatious. Yes, yes, it's fabulous. What a drama queen. Yes. Um, then he goes on to say what he thinks the convivium should do. And I think if you come to this cold, it's very difficult to figure out what the convivium actually is because it is this kind of mixture of an abstract mingling of learned minds and just, you know, meeting up with your friends to talk about your ideas. It is just like an academic seminar. Yeah, it, but, but it's a kind of utopian one. It re rebuilds limbs, revives humours, restores spirit, delights senses, fosters and awakens reason. The convivium is rest from labours, release from cares and nourishment of genius. Of genius. <laughs> it is the demonstration of love and splendour, the food of goodwill, the seasoning of friendship, the leavening of grace and the solace of life. Wow. <laughs> um, so then he goes on to talk about the form, the proper number and the quality of the participants. So what kind of conversation you should have, the music. He says, the participants should be graced by the graces, gifted by the muses, comma, and men of letters. Bitter and deeply melancholic men should be excluded unless they be similar to Zeno the Stoic or Xenocrates the Platonist. Party poopers are out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Unless they're really special 
Yeah, and then I think this really exemplifies what I'm saying about how it's about real food, but also about kind of spiritual and moral nourishment. They should mix sweetness with sharpness, humor with gravity, profit with pleasure. Let their wit be fine, both pointed and salty, but not offensive or bitter, because the convivium can tolerate vinegar, but not wormwood. Ah, oh, that's interesting, because yes, wormwood is meant to be very bitter. It's what you put on your nipples to, uh, to wean a child in this period as well. Yeah, Is it? I had no idea. Like, like, you know, when you put stuff on your nails to stop you from biting them. I see. It talks about the kinds of food and wine that you should drink. As to the victuals for the convivium, in our view, misery is the poison of life and gloom is poison at the table, he says. And then goes on to say that we should have wine, but nothing too fat or oily. But we don't want to lack the Pythagorean fruits, cabbages and apples. I've got no idea what that means. Any listeners who know, they can write in and tell me. Write in. (laughs) So he basically says, the convivium is the route to the good life. The people there should be even-tempered and should have good learning. They should have a certain type of food and drink to grease the wheels, (laughs) as it were. Like Like our weekly beer or G and tea. Yes, exactly. And then he justifies essentially having a party through his learning so should anyone wonder why we make so much of the convivium aka our dinner parties he should remember that convivia was similarly celebrated by plato xenophon and varon and very many other philosophers also frequent convivia according to the men of old do not the heroes and the heavenly beings take their ease at table right so essentially this is fine because people in in classical Rome did it. Yeah, and then he also says that, you know, you can, this can be a kind of spiritual communion as well. So Pacino is all about everything being everything, right? Love is about sex and it's about God. Food is about physical nourishment, but it's also a metaphor. Meeting up with your friends is also the same as communing with ancient philosophers. All of this is the good life. And you know, he uses learning as a means of justifying what seems to be a friendly gathering but then he's making it seem like it's a lot more and in some ways it is a lot more because the convivium is the symposium is this platonic model it's also a real thing that he's being asked to conduct in renaissance florence for the glory of the city so i suppose that there's all these layers in his writing because he has such a multifaceted role and way of thinking about life and then he asks at the end, to what end is all this written about the convivium? Simply that we who live separated lives, though not without vexation, may live together in happiness as one. So partly why I wanted to bring this is because it's also counter to this myth of the ivory tower solo thinker who is locked in a room contemplating life. Actually, learning is also fundamentally social Yeah, in this period. In praise of collaboration. Oh, yes. Well, um, I am really enjoying our convivium. Me too, Leah. It's just a shame that we are not eating as well as drinking as Ficino would want us to. I know, that is a shame. Oh, at the end, I might say quickly that this model of social sharing of ideas and learning does get adopted by women in France. Salon culture emerges in France in the 17th century and it's women hosting often mixed gendered gatherings of writers and scholars and nobles who discuss their learning and ideas in what is supposed to be quite an edifying way. So this starts off as this very Latin Greek mystic manly thing. (laughs) But becomes a much more sort of dominant cultural mode. Yeah, yeah. And then now today, 
in a very different way but maybe in a way that is connected. We have symposiums and with their little plates of sandwiches and warm white wine. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that is one thing that I am not sad about missing right now is terrible conference food. Okay. So Leah, how would you, if you want people to take away one or two things from this session, what would it be? I guess. What I would want someone to take away from this session is the ways in which early modern people felt that knowledge gathered had to be applied for women and in particular the ways in which women were expected to be gathering knowledge for others and systematizing that knowledge too and that there's a virtue in knowing things and uh, being useful within households um, but also within communities too I guess I will say that although that's the kind of ideal in a lot of these kind of conduct manuals there is a huge amount of evidence to suggest that women are not just gathering knowledge that's been produced by other people but they're actually creating knowledge and in particular they're really active at home in testing you know, for want of a better word, drugs, testing medical treatments, assessing whether or not they're useful, tweaking them, exchanging knowledge in letters and writing things down in recipe books. And of course, even at a more professional level, um, women are, are kind of applying their knowledge in very useful ways. How about you, Emma? What would you say are your sort of big take home messages? Well, actually, what you've just said has made me think about also how women are contributing to philosophy and having their own ideas across the spectrum of learning that women are actually participating like people like Margaret Cavendish who has amazing natural science slash philosophical imaginations in the 17th century but what I would say is that you can think of learning and the good life in two ways where learning is itself conceived of as the good life so if you're living and devoting your life to scholarship you have to be either wealthy or sustained by a patron right but that's one way that early modern people think about the good life which I wouldn't want to dismiss out of hand because I think that learning for learning's sake is something that we're losing hold of today maybe because claims about elitism and impracticality are being weaponized in a bad faith way and that there is something interesting and quite um, enduring about this idea that through study you can gain material for living a good or better or a somehow more bearable life that might cut across different life experiences and across the centuries because one of the reasons I wanted to work on this topic in the first place is because I found humor and inspiration and a kind of imaginative solace in sources like the one that I've discussed today even though it is very likely a very misogynist long dead man um writing about his dreams of the convivium. Thank you for listening to Twice Told Tales. Written and presented by Leah Asprey and Emma Clawson and edited by Fiona Simon. If you want to get in touch, please email us at twicetoldtalespodcast at gmail.com and we're both on Twitter. 